think that there is a value in our democratic conversations to integrating the perspectives, not just from an identity standpoint, but also from an expertise standpoint of a broad range of people. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. In the last few days, police in Moscow have beaten and jailed peaceful protesters. They have locked up the opposition leader, Alexander Navalny, and it appears that he may have been poisoned in captivity. And as I've been looking on from a distance at these brave Russians fighting for democracy, I couldn't help but think of that famous phrase that Vladimir Putin said a few weeks ago in an interview with the Financial Times, that liberalism is now obsolete. Because I think the events of the last days give us a good understanding of what he really meant by that. Putin was trying a very smart tactic. When he says liberalism, he wants you to think about whatever disagreements you may have with the left on issues of immigration policy, for example. And then he wants to move people to think that because they too have certain disagreements with people on the left on issues like immigration, the whole idea of liberalism, including some of the fundamental elements of our political system, should be thrown overboard. Now, the way to respond to that is to call his bluff, to emphasize that it is perfectly legitimate to have disagreements about different political issues, that we have a political right that can be legitimate as well as a political left that can be legitimate in our political system, but that there are certain fundamental aspects of our democracy that we will defend. The right to free speech, the right to criticize the government, the right to run against the government, and the kinds of institutions we need to sustain that over time like a clear separation of powers, like a fair electoral system, like respect for some of the basic norms of how our institutions work. When I take issue with authoritarian populists, many of them on the right, but some of them on the left, it's not because I want to impose liberal social policies on the world. I may happen to have a preference for those too. It's because I want to defend liberalism in this fundamental way. And on that, I actually think that the news is positive. Even if many citizens take for granted aspects of liberal democracy, even if they are less firmly committed to them than they might have been in the past, they do not want to live in a state like Russia where they can be locked up by the police for opposing the government. In that sense, Vladimir Putin is both normatively and empirically wrong. He is normatively wrong because the kind of country in which the police can persecute you for expressing your opinion is terrible to live in. And he's empirically wrong, because I still believe that citizens around the world, including in Russia, aspire to regain and to preserve those liberties. I really look forward to a very different kind of conversation. I am speaking to Dan Baer, who is of interest for all of the things he has been doing in recent years. He was a high-level appointee at the State Department, and he was an ambassador at the OECD under Barack Obama. I have met him at many different conferences, and we've had fascinating conversations about populism and the American political scene. But he's different from my other guests in the sense that he's currently running for political office. He's running to be the Democratic nominee for senator in Colorado. And so we had a great conversation both about uh, the nature of uh, populism and the danger that now faces us, but also about how somebody who is running for office can try to do something about it. And also about the unpleasant aspects of running for office, like having to spend a lot of your time asking people for money. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thanks for having me. So you were not doing the worst job in America, but doing the worst job application process in America. You're running for Senate. It always struck me as just being grueling and ungrateful. And you have to go and speak to every local meeting, which might be fun, but also, you know, spend your time meeting donors. And isn't it exhausting? It is exhausting. And 
And you're right that the part of the process that is actually most fulfilling and enjoyable, which is actually talking to voters and understanding what's on their mind, is not as prominent in the process as people might think it was. And that part makes it hard because the amount of resources that are required to run a serious campaign in this day and age in the United States requires a really long runway and a lot of time spent raising those resources. So I can think of lots of disadvantages of running our politics that way, right? One is that it gives outside voice to influential people, people with money and so on. Another is just that instead of candidates being able to spend time on thinking about policy, thinking about what they actually want to do, they have to run around the country and be utterly exhausted by election day. Can you think of any advantages? I mean, do you get something out of this? Is it a good way of testing organizational skill? Do you actually get valuable insights when you talk to donors? Or do you think it really is systematically bad for the political system? Look, on the whole, I think we need to get money out of our politics. I think on the whole, there are many more downsides than upsides. That doesn't mean that you don't learn something from some conversations, etc. It doesn't mean that the challenge of setting up what is effectively a startup that is open for business for one day um, um, isn't a interesting strategic challenge. It, I mean, it is, but I think our politics would be better served by a system that made money less of a central focus. You know, the one thing is that in other systems where there is a very strict kind of party organized and everybody starts as a student leader in the party and they work their way up and that's the only way you can get in, I think one of the advantages of our system is that historically has been that people from outside of politics can get mm. into politics. Now, that gets harder and harder the more that money matters because the only way you build up a list and a crew of donors in order to run for some offices is by being a career politician. And I think we've lost then one of the advantages of the American system historically, which has been that the idea of a citizen legislator has been possible. That's interesting. I was advising a friend on whether to try to enter German politics a couple of days ago. And it's just incredibly hard to do for somebody who's done interesting things in the world, who's accomplished, because the thing that's prized is that you live in some town and you've gone to the party meetings for the last 20 years. And when somebody was needed to put up posters for the next election campaign, you were there. And so eventually it's your turn. Now that has some good things. It does select for people who are conscientious, who probably do care about the issues of that political party, but it also selects a lot of times for mediocrity. It also selects a lot of time for people who haven't been out in the world doing lots of other things. So that's interesting, actually. Yeah, and the foot soldiers of the party or, uh, you know, the people who, who do that, who are precinct captains, etc., those people drive our electoral outcomes and they do often thankless work. It's really important work. You know, nobody gives them the glory on election day, et cetera. So, you know, I have deep respect for them. Part of what I think benefits our democracy and what has been historically a benefit of democracy is this idea that you bring people from different walks of life with different perspectives, different areas of deep substantive expertise to the table as part of the government. And I think if we lose that, if we make it only a requirement that you have spent all of your time in one sphere, to say, you know, the local or, or state level political sphere, then we lose something in the richness of the policies that will emerge and in the wisdom of the judgment that will emerge in holding the executive branch to account or representing our country around the world. There's a book that Josh Ober wrote about trying to explain why Athens was as successful as it was because geographically and you know other kind of core strategic assets it didn't seem to be different from other city states mm -hmm. and um, he had these measures of success and you know the, the reach of your currency the number of great cultural artifacts that had been created etc right and, and all of those things Athens just outperformed all the other right. city states and, yeah. and and part of the theory of that is that it made a difference when you had a farmer mm. in the discussion about when to go to war with a neighboring state because the farmer would say you know they're going to be harvesting for these two weeks and so if we attack then then we might catch them off guard, et cetera. And if you didn't have the farmer there, you wouldn't necessarily have that knowledge. And you know that's a oversimplification, but I do think that 
there is a value in our democratic conversations to integrating the perspectives, not just from an identity standpoint, but also from an expertise standpoint of a broad range of people. Even for while we're on the classics, Aristotle says somewhere that, you know, the advantage of democracy is like a potluck dinner. And I've always found potluck dinners to be particularly unappealing. Um, <laughs> but I think there's somebody who tried to explain, actually, no, the potluck dinner is a wrong translation. It's really like a citizen-led committee planning the dinner. But that sounds better. I, I can get on board with that. <laughs> so look, you are somebody who straddles a lot of foreign policy and domestic policy experience. You were an ambassador under Obama at the OSCE, but you also ran the higher education portfolio in Colorado. Which do you want to talk about first, foreign policy or domestic? Well, these days, the line between them is increasingly blurred, not only on education, but on a range of policy issues, you know, what is domestic policy, is foreign policy. And I think that's actually a source of, of some of the anxiety that we see in the electorate more generally. So either one is fine. Well, first of all, explain this idea better, and then we'll, then we'll see whether we go to domestic or foreign. Isn't it still true that voters actually don't care about foreign policy and that they don't care either about foreign policy or the line between domestic and foreign policy, they really care about domestic policy? And in what ways do you think voters actually care about foreign policy? As you said, the conventional wisdom is that voters don't care about foreign policy. And certainly the thing that when I talk to voters around Colorado, the thing, the things that matter most are the things that hit close to home, so-called kitchen table issues and education, healthcare, jobs, the environment. Uh, all of these are issues that people raise because they see their effect in their communities. Right. But I think what has changed is that people recognize, even if they don't ask specific questions about foreign policy, they recognize that those those issues that hit them close to home increasingly have an international element to them. And they may not know what the details of the Paris Accords were, but they understand that there's no way that we're going to actually confront the catastrophic threat of climate change without some sort of international cooperation and standard setting. And so they see the thread that goes from concern about the continuation of the outdoor industry in Colorado to international cooperation. And so I think with education, they understand that a child that is born in Pueblo or Durango today is going to be competing in some sense on a global scale with children that are born in Berlin or in Windhoek or, you know, anywhere else in the world. And so I think, and what I was saying about the anxiety, I think the world has grown smaller and faster in most of our sensibilities in the last generation. Hmm. Digitization, as well as the progress of globalization, have made it feel like the problems of the world are much closer at hand for any one of us, and they are more complicated and moving more quickly. And I think part of what those of us who are trying to make an argument for the future, which is what I see politics as, part of what we have to do these days is figure out how to address that anxiety. It doesn't mean that every piece of the complexity can be or should be explained, but we have to address that anxiety and, and give people a sense that we can be at home in the 21st century. Now, that seems right to me as a sort of political vision to calm people. I mean, the sort of global competition we have between liberal democracy and authoritarian populism, it strikes me the most important thing we have to do is to give people confidence that the future can, in fact, be better. But let's start on foreign policy. I mean, I was thinking as we were talking that, in general, as a precept in politics, I think it's helpful to remember that errors are often defined as much by what different political parties agree on as by what they disagree on. And it's something to which contemporaries are often blind because the differences seem very salient to them. I mean, you know, to understand the foreign policy of the 90s and 2000s, and I think there's important differences between Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, but in a way they agreed on America's global role, and they agreed to some extent on a idealistic notion of what that might look like. So within the democratic side, the isolationists really were not very strong, and so it was a sort of liberal interventionism. On the Republican side, the realists were very weak, and it was a form of neoconservatism which shares in foreign policy certain elements with liberal interventionism. Now I wonder whether we are seeing a shift in both political parties. So certainly within the Republican Party, we have a nationalism that defines itself in opposition to international institutions, in opposition to strong partnerships with allies, which I find very concerning. But you also see the rise of uh, a form of isolationism within the Democratic Party. So do you think we're entering a new consensus on some of those issues? 
I hope not, but let me go back to the consistency or the stated consistency between the Clinton era and the George W. Bush era. You know, I think what we saw there was, yes, what was consistent was that there was a vision for American leadership in the world and an understanding that that was a good thing. And that was not obviously something that started with Bill Clinton. That was actually a continuation of every American presidency since World War II. And what we did see, the cleavage between the Clinton era and the Bush era was a cleavage on tactics. I, I don't actually think that when history is written, you know, likely the, the greatest foreign policy blunder in the history books about the Clinton administration will be its failure to intervene in Rwanda. And the greatest blunder for the Bush administration was will, an intervention. will be an intervention. And so I think, yeah. you know, the difference on tactics, even if there was a kind of broad consensus on strategy, will be a difference that is remembered by history. And the latter difference, I mean, the mistake that was the Iraq war is probably the key mistake to generating the isolationist strands in both parties today. Let's take a step back from this. You know, it can get very question of what, you know, does America have a, a right to play this role or that role? And is it imperialist or that? Can, let's take a step back from it and just look at the problems in the world today and the possible problem solvers. Mm. And with almost every problem, there is no way that it gets solved without America. That doesn't mean that America has to be calling the shots and dictating the plays on, on every problem, but we have to be part of the cooperative effort. And so I think the idea of America as a cooperator in chief is one that shouldn't be ideological or partisan. It's just, it's a reality when you look at the world that we live in, because the alternative is this kind of neo-realist view, which is that we will go it alone and might will make right. And that is not sensible given the arrangement of power and the arrangement of dependence in the world today. It's so much cheaper and so much more likely to be successful for us to play that cooperator in chief role. And I think it's really at risk because of young people today who have never seen that kind of role pay dividends. Because for young mm. people today who are not politically conscious at the turn of the century, all they've seen is what they perceive to be blunder. Interesting, yeah. I mean, this is something that always strikes me in these debates, that there's a strand, perhaps especially on the sort of intellectual left, of not thinking seriously about alternatives and hypotheticals, right? So they think about, is American power good or bad? And you can make arguments about, over times, that America screwed up, and they're real. Um, uh, but it's never a question of, well, what would the world look like otherwise? And what would the world look like in absence of our actions? So I think about that on Syria. I have no idea what the right thing to do in Syria would have been. It's not clear to me that more robust American uh, intervention would have been better. But it really disturbs me when people speak about it, like the peace activists saying, you know, we want to stop America from doing anything in Syria to make sure that we keep peace. And you want to look at people and shake them and say, is there peace in Syria? Has there been peace in Syria for the last 10 years? What on earth are you talking about? And I'm got similar when you think about American power in the world, which is sometimes good and it can sometimes be bad. But when you're thinking about whether you want the United States to help set the rules of the world or whether you want to leave the task to uh, Russia, China and Iran, I think the answer suggests itself. But when you talk to voters in Colorado, if somebody says to you, hey, I think we should just get out of the world. We're pretty safe here in America. Why should we be World Cup, why should we be doing anything? How do you persuade them? What can you say that actually will get them to understand the stakes and move them? I think a couple of things. I think right now, unfortunately, the most powerful argument is a negative one. I think voters understand that the Trump foreign policy, which has basically been a series of reflexive actions not tied to a brain. I mean, there's no discernible strategy, actually, which makes it very hard to actually... But Jared Kushner has a master plan. Yes, I'm sure he does. <laughs> um, he's like a sphinx in, in the way that he keeps it obscure and, and Of course. It's, I mean, if he uh, said the master plan out loud, loud. then he would play. <laughs> yeah. and, okay, we'll... Anyway... <laughs> um, you know, people have a sense that Trump's foreign policy is creating chaos in the world, and especially in a moment where people reasonably have a sense of anxiety about the complexity and speed at which the world is moving, more chaos does not make us feel more safe. And that's reasonable and, and right. And so I think part of the message is that the way that we address the chaos in the world is through America working with others to address it. And I think then there's an affirmative argument, which is on the issues that matter to us, 
in terms of protecting jobs in the American economy, in terms of making sure that our young people are prepared to participate in and compete in a, a 21st century economy, in terms of tackling climate change. All of these issues are issues in terms of keeping our country safe and, and having reasonable border security and making sure that we're countering terrorism. All of these issues are issues on which American leadership in the world is necessary in order to deliver for people here at home. And I find the conventional wisdom when I started doing this, everybody said, oh, you spent uh, the entire Obama administration working as a diplomat. People don't care about that. Mm -hmm. I, actually, one of the things that people say when I'm talking to folks, they'll come up to me afterwards and say, the thing I like most about you is that you are a diplomat because I feel like we need more diplomats in Washington. And diplomats, because they associate the virtues of diplomacy with them, because they think that you're able to talk to people whom you disagree in a respectful way and see how to come to agreements, or diplomat because of international policy experience? I think a bit of both. Um, certainly the former is something that I hear. You know, people will say to me, I want somebody who will fight for the principles that we believe in, mm -hmm. and also somebody who will get something done. And that can sound like people talking out of both sides of their mouth, right, right. but they're not, and that they associate that with diplomacy. At the same time... Well, this is an important point, I think, because there's this bizarre debate at the moment between, you know, should people be fighters or should they be compromisers? And it's sometimes portrayed as though it's this binary space where the compromiser comes in and is willing to be run over and railroaded by Republicans, and the fighter should just say, I hate you, you are bad people, right? And the truth is that you want something that's both. You want somebody who's passionate about their ideals and who has very strong political anchoring and who's going to try to get the most possible movement in their direction, but who does that by actually engaging with the other side and by talking to people and by corralling them and by sitting down and in a respectful way debating the differences and trying to move a dial. Absolutely. I mean, you know, accomplishing things to deliver for voters, you have to be able to negotiate. There's a time in which being a good fighter helps you position yourself for a better negotiation. And I certainly understand that. And I certainly experienced that jousting with the Russians in public and then negotiating with them in private. But voters want us to get things done for them. And frankly, the way that we restore confidence in the system at large is by doing things, not giving speeches. Um, and, you know, the giving speeches should be in service of getting things done. What are the changes that we should make in foreign policy? I mean, I, I do take seriously the point that those of us who are very, very worried about Donald Trump and the rise of his authoritarian populism around the world more broadly can sometimes sound like we are hearkening back to a golden age and thinking if only we could go back to the days when we had a wonderful president like Barack Obama and great ambassadors like you, everything would be great. But that's not very convincing, right? So how is it that we should take some of the ideals, which I think the Obama administration did embody, and fight for them and advocate for them more effectively on the international scene? One of the points you make is that there's no way backward to normal. There's only a forward to normal. Hmm. Um, That's a nice And we have to remember that. I think one of the things that the Obama era, hopefully one of the legacies of the Obama era, is that I hope that people will remember that one of the first things he did on his first full day in office was an executive order that banned the use of torture. Hmm. And obviously I support that because I oppose torture, but also because I think it underscored something that I think we will need to keep close as we move forward, which is that American power is powerful not just because of its core elements of hard power, not just because of its hardware, but also because of the software. Because we have, over decades, built up a reputation for, yes, being imperfect, but being nonetheless, on the whole, genuinely committed to a set of principles that are principles that are open to all and that are actually in the interest of all, uh, including people around the world. And I think one of the things that will be important in 2021 when we hopefully are setting a new course in foreign policy is to make sure that, you know, a progressive foreign policy is one that is rooted in American values, which is to say universal values, and that we understand that the best way to move forward in building a basis for cooperation that will benefit the American people is to uphold universal standards that apply to everyone, including ourselves, and to be an, an example. And that is what distinguishes us and our power from others who might pretend to compete. How much lasting damage do you think Donald Trump has done on that? I mean, I think he's clearly doing a lot of damage right now, and I'm sure you could create, give a great campaign speech about that, but let, let's skip that because I think we all agree on that. But let's say that 
a great democratic president comes in and is elected in 2020, comes in, in the beginning of 2021, makes all of the right noises. But I was advising uh, European nations on foreign policy. I think I would tell them, don't trust it. Because we don't know when a successor to somebody like Donald Trump might be elected. Your security depends completely on the United States at this point. So of course you should try and rebuild the relationship with America, and I'm a very strong proponent of a transatlantic relationship. But I think you need to develop real autonomy and independence because who knows whether America is going to be reliable in five or 10, 20 years. As an American citizen, it pains me to say this in this hypothetical. But what would your response to somebody like that be? I mean, a couple of things. One, I think if we beat Trump in 2020, and obviously, especially if we beat him convincingly, my expectation is that most of our European partners will welcome us back with open arms and say, let's never speak of that again. <laughs> We're so glad you're home. Let's not talk of this. And I think it's a very different scenario if Trump is reelected. You know, the 2016 election can be chalked up to a combination of factors, the rise of global populism, the intervention of the Russians in our elections, the way that the seas were swashing back and forth at the time. It can be called a fluke in some rationalization. But if we reelect the guy, we own it. Um, and I think it does change the character of our country, not only internationally, but domestically for a much longer period, not to mention the fact that you can do much more damage in eight years of an administration than you can in four. It's not twice as much as 10 times as much or 100 times yeah. as much. Yeah. I guess the argument that I would make to try to persuade you not to advise European governments, there's no question that some damage has been done and that there's less stable expectations than there once were. And you can call that a shattering of innocence. Evidence would suggest that they never should have been as stable as they were. But I think there's still much more in the long run that augurs for a restoration or a new 21st century transatlantic relationship based on the overlapping interests and values of the communities on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. And I think the future kind of depends on that. I think all of us right now have to be focused on making what we are living through a moment, not a trajectory. Yeah. And if we're committed to that, then we should continue to define it as such. And we should recognize that there have been moments in history before that have not proved to be trajectories and that it is incumbent upon us to make sure that for the good of the future of the world, uh, that, that this too is just a moment, a, a painful, awful, scary one, but just a moment and not the beginning of a trajectory. Yeah, there's a huge difference between getting sloppily and obnoxiously drunk at somebody's dinner party once when you know them relatively well. <laughs> and people can say, well, I don't know what on earth happened to Yasha that night, but I've never seen him like that. <laughs> uh, once you do that a second or a third time, it becomes very different. Yes. It comes to define you in a slightly different way. To quote George W. Bush, fool me, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I'm not a campaign strategist, but uh, probably quoting George W. Bush is not the best campaign strategy for a Democrat running today. Um, I think the positive news is that European foreign policy elites are even more averse to thinking than American ones. And I think they are trying as desperately as they can to take as few lessons as possible from Trump. And so I think they are likely to underlearn the lessons of Trump. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly if Trump is thrown out of office in 2020, I think you're right, that it'll be a matter of let's never speak about this again. Let's completely ignore what happened. I mean, the other question about the transatlantic relationship, which I think is underplayed in the kinds of circles that are obsessed with that, is that the increasingly noxious behavior by Russia on the international scene and the growing power and threat from China will undermine the relationship in certain ways because it'll provide opportunities for people to peel off, but it'll also improve and harden it. Because as people recognize how inimical some of those other world powers are to the values that North America and Western Europe shares, um, as well as many countries in Asia and around the world, because as you were saying, they are universal values. I think it'll create a new impetus to rebuild and strengthen some of those institutions. We had already learned the lesson that the end of history had not happened, but I think it's important to remember that the end of history, it wasn't the end of human stories. Really, the end of history is the end of war. That's the core of the theory, because war has been the driving force behind human history and mm -hmm. political contest. And... I think 
assuming that we will get through this moment, and I believe we will, I think one of the things we will look back on, on both sides of the Atlantic, is we will say that the silver lining of the, the populist moment that we lived through was that it reminded us of how precious our institutions are and how fragile values are without the buttressing of institutions and how important it is that we stand up for those. And that, you know, in the long run, European societies and the United States have actually proven to be quite resilient despite the attacks on institutions and liberal values right now, quite resilient. And the other pretenders to, to global power right now have many more internal weaknesses uh, that threaten their collapse than, than our societies do. And I think that's a position of strength from which we can work to rebuild institutions and, and a platform for global cooperation as well. That sounds like a nice pin in the conversation about foreign policy. Let's talk about domestic policy. I actually noted down the lovely phrase you, you had earlier, there's no way back to normal, there's only forward to normal. What does the way forward to normal look like on the economy, on cultural issues, on the whole portfolio of things that we're debating every day in our politics? So there is a narrative out there in political commentary and dinner party discussions or town hall meetings, etc., that Washington is broken and therefore the rest of America is broken and suffering from failures in the system. And I think certainly Washington dysfunction does impact the rest of the country, but I think that narrative in terms of the causality is possibly reversed. And that what has actually happened is that the accumulating effects of economic policy as well as changes in our political system have created this reality where, you know, three quarters of Americans have not seen a raise in a generation. And what that means is three quarters of Americans are fighting over a shrinking pie. Mm. So we have two pies in America. We have one for the top quarter that is growing and growing at variable rates for different people in the top quarter and obviously much more quickly for the very top. And then we have a pie that is shrinking for the bottom 70%, 75%. It's not surprising in that context that you end up, when you have people fighting over a shrinking economic pie, that people end up drawing lines, either drawing old lines anew or drawing new lines, uh, and it becomes more tribal and more polarized. And I think we see that reflected in Washington. So I think resetting the economy so that it actually delivers for a broad swath of Americans and obviously strengthens the middle class, that has to be one, and that means doing things, that has to be one focus. And then resetting our politics as well. Uh, the attack on voting rights, as well as the presence of huge amounts of money, dark money and special interest money in our politics, has damaged the state of our politics as a contest of ideas. And, you know, both our economic system and our political system are premised on the idea that competition drives positive outcomes for everyone. Mm -hmm. But that competition has to be free and fair in order for that right. to work in either our politics or our economy. And I think there are strong arguments to make that both our politics and our economy have perverted the kind of level playing field for free and fair competition. So, so how do we ride the level playing field in the area of the economy, for example? I mean, it sounds like you're somebody who appreciates uh, the important role of markets yeah. in our country, the role of free enterprise, but you're worried about the ways in which, you know, the rules that apply to the most powerful in our country are not always the same rules that apply to everybody else. And, and that's a real problem. What do we need to do in order to change that, in, in order to make sure that the pie starts growing again for the bulk of the population? I mean, there's not one answer, but let's start from a reason standpoint or what makes sense to people. What people want is a system that is fair. They want a system where they can see that risks and rewards are matched. And right now it feels like that's out of whack. I think in terms of how we start to kind of reset the economy so that it works for more people, I would start with the areas where you can unleash people to participate in the economy who are not currently participating in the economy because of the challenges that they face and because of the way the economy has changed. You know, there's a huge rise in contract workers, not only in the so-called gig economy, but contract workers for large corporations, etc. That makes our failure to solve the challenge of universal health care one that is keeping people out of work or or from changing jobs yeah, yeah. to be more effective or more fulfilled in their work, etc. That's a huge challenge. And it's not just a healthcare as a right issue. It's also an economic participation issue. Similarly, elder care and, and child care are, are both issues that need to be addressed in order to release more participation in the economy, uh, particularly by women. And so I think you start 
with things that you know will free up people to participate in the economy mm -hmm. more. But I think, you know, going back to the fairness point, I think we have to recognize that part of what people are saying right now, part of the anger out there right now, is that America is a rich enough country that nobody should have to be without healthcare or should be bankrupted because of healthcare costs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that just is common sense to people. America is a rich enough country where no child should have to grow up in poverty. So, so let, me, let me ask you two questions about healthcare, which I often find Americans don't sufficiently grapple with. So there's two things that strike me about healthcare in America that aren't normally part of the conversation, especially on the left. Well, on both sides, actually. The first is that it really is a more deeply distributional question than people think about. The experience of dealing with healthcare in this country to me, and I've dealt with it in Germany and Britain and to some extent France and Italy, is first of all that the service and quality you get is vastly superior. In Germany, you often wait three, four, five hours in the waiting room for a normal doctor's appointment. In Britain, famously, you know, you come to the doctor with a relatively serious ailment and we say, well, you know, if you're not dead in three weeks, come back. Now, it has huge downsides. One of the downsides is that even if you're on the good side of it, dealing with insurance is an utter nightmare of Kafkaesque proportions. And of course, the main downside is that if you're seriously sick or if you don't have insurance, it is an utter nightmare. But if you're thinking about how to fix the system, I think part of it is that having effective universal healthcare probably does mean some loss in quality of service to a lot of people. And I don't think that people have seriously grappled with that. And the second point is, and I don't want to cut into your uh, donor base here, that the wages that healthcare workers make are gigantic by international comparison. That is certainly true of doctors, but it's actually true of nurses. I mean, I looked recently at the salary of registered nurses in the United States, and they are higher than the salary of many doctors in Europe. And so in the end, there's just a simple economic calculation where if you need to purchase the labor of professionals to help you, and they are making vastly more than the average of the population, it's going to be really expensive one way or the other. And so in my mind, the only realistic solution to universal healthcare needs to involve better negotiation with drug companies and all of those things, but also probably reduction in, in salaries for people like doctors. And that's not a popular position. So am I wrong about these two things? Let me go back to where you started, which you, you said the service and quality you get is vastly superior. Let, let me restate that. The service and quality you get is vastly superior. But there's a lot of people who don't get anything. No, but that's why yeah, yeah. No, I'm aware of it, but that's why it's a distributional matter, right? I mean, Absolutely. if you have decent health insurance, which a lot of Americans do, you get an incredibly good product with a lot of headaches of bureaucratic nature, but you actually do get a very good product. And then there's other people who don't have access to any of that and who get utterly screwed. But that means that solving it will probably mean some amount of real redistribution. Because it's not clear to me that you can put everybody up to the extreme level of service and so on that you get. I think that's true, that universal healthcare in America looks like the Cadillac Gold Star $3,000 a month plan that some employers provide for people in the financial services industry or whatever. I mean, you know, I, I think that's true. Rich people have a long history of being able to look after themselves, and I think there will still be private insurance in this country, as there is in the UK and elsewhere, where even when you have access to universal plans or access, everybody has access to a, a, a basic health insurance plan, people add on to it, either because of needs or because of preferences or et cetera. And so I think that will, that will be the case. Our health care system is so complicated that no one thing is going to <laughs> obviously explain it. And I, I, you know, I think over time, the market will respond in different ways to the expansion of coverage. We've started to see that already with the effects of Obamacare. Again, I go back to what I hear from people is the sense that nobody should be bankrupted. Um, certainly nobody should die, which is happening today in the United States for lack of care. And that people understand that America is a place that is infused with competition, but it feels like in the 21st century, winning and losing in the United States of America should not be a life or death proposition. And I don't think I don't think that's a crazy position. And so, you know, I think the genesis of the superior care that wealthy people are able to have in the United States is not just because of the structure of our current health insurance market. It's also because we're the largest, wealthiest 
industrialized country on earth, and so we have the largest concentration of medical research, and there's no reason that that needs to change, and we have the greatest research universities in the world, we will continue to have that. So I think as we address healthcare, the goal should be to triage and start with the folks who don't have access to affordable care or who don't have access to care at all, and to get access to them, as well as to drive down costs for everyone. That makes sense to me. Since you worked on education in Colorado, for a long time. I guess I have two sets of questions there. I mean, the first is that one of the most depressing facts about the United States today is the ongoing segregation in a lot of the reality of elementary, middle, high school education particularly. What do we do about that? How can we fight against that in a way that both raises actual educational outcomes and doesn't push a lot of white people into private education, which is not a solution, right? So how can you fight against segregation in the educational system in a way that actually uplifts people across the system? It is true that, in fact, we've gone backwards in many places in terms of progress on desegregation, obviously, both for reasons of policy, as well as, I think, a nationwide challenge in terms of the discrepancy in the methods of school funding. And so you have still today in a great number of places, schools that are largely minority or majority minority that have less funding than schools that are in wealthier and whiter areas. And obviously that continues to drive segregation, not address it. So, you know, one of the core things that we have to do is look at school funding and be committed to funding our schools and our teachers as professionals. What would that look like? I mean, certainly this is probably one of the most anomalous features of American governance. I just don't know of any other place in which school funding is so dependent on the very specific neighborhood you're in. And so, you know, in Germany and France and all of these places, you have some excellent public schools that tend to be in much more affluent areas that also then tend to be much more white. And you have some very poor schools, often in immigrant neighborhoods. But that is a matter of which schools teachers select into, how much social capital the students who come into these schools have, um, how much the parents can help them on homework and so on. But it's not really an issue of school funding in most places. The school funding of the best school and the worst school in Berlin is similar, not perhaps identical, but similar. The salaries of teachers in the best school and the worst school in Berlin is similar, perhaps not identical, but similar. And here you have this vast discrepancy. So, so what can you do about that? So funding isn't all of it, is what we see. When I was running the Department of Higher Education and Colorado has a achievement gap, uh, attainment gap, that is significant between white Coloradans and, and Coloradans of color, particularly, at the, you know, I was focused on the post-secondary level. In Colorado today, about 57% of the adult population over 25 has some sort of post-secondary credential or degree. But 71% of Coloradans of color don't. Hmm. And so they disproportionately make up. And, you know, what's happened is we have this kind of double whammy of, for the first time in economic history of our country, Economists, policymakers say the vast majority of American workers need to have some sort of post-secondary credential, not necessarily yeah, yeah, yeah. for your degree, but some sort of post-secondary credential in order to participate meaningfully in the economy and have a meaningful shot at the middle class life. And at the same time, education has become increasingly expensive and out of reach. And so if you are a first generation student, if you aren't from inherited wealth, and I don't mean inherited wealth in the sense of tens of millions of dollars, I mean, you grew up in a middle class family that owned a home in the suburbs it's incredibly hard because you're being told you must get some sort of post-secondary education. And by the way, we've made it unaffordable for those who don't have access to family wealth. When I make that argument or when I would talk about that, I, I talked about it because of my personal values from a social justice perspective, that this is just simply intolerable to have these gaps. But it's also very resonant with the business community because they recognize that because of demographic changes in this country, if we do not figure out how to address equity gaps, we will not have the workers that our companies need in order to drive the economy in 10 years, 20 years. It's just, you don't have to believe in social justice, you just have to believe in math. And unfortunately, one of the ways that our problems get solved is when the business community starts to recognize the huge challenges that a particular mm. social problem causes for them. We find that there are more voices advocating for it. And, you know, one of the things that I think we will have to do is figure out how to, you know, Kamala Harris has put forward a, a proposal to, which has never been done before uh, to have 
the federal government intervened directly in teacher pay and to close the teacher pay gap, which is to say the gap between teachers and other professionals who have similar levels of education, mm -hmm. restoring the level of professionalism in the teaching profession, recognizing that when schools have equal funding and still have differential outcomes, it doesn't mean that the school that has all of the rich white kids is a, quote, better school. Mm -hmm. It's probably a reflection of the social capital. And actually, the better school is the one that is able to help do what America is supposed to be about, which is to help anybody from any background be able to participate and to succeed. Those schools are better if they're doing that. Um, they're doing more to drive that. And so I think, you know, it's going to have to be according teachers with the professional respect they de deserve, paying teachers a professional salary. It will be school funding, but it is also recognizing that in order to deliver what we need to deliver in terms of the future workforce of this country, we are going to have to raise the caliber of our public education system. And our public education system has driven our economy for the last hundred years and, and has upped its game repeatedly for mm -hmm. the last hundred years too. And so this is something that we shouldn't wring our hands about. We should just recognize it is an imperative and we must do it. It's an investment, not only for our domestic economy, but also for our national security. We need to be able to compete. Education should be seen as a national security issue. You said something interesting, which is that you care about the achievement gap between different schools as a matter of your personal beliefs in social justice. But you think it's also important to argue for it in terms that'll appeal to people who don't share those beliefs, people who just business in Colorado that just want to have good employees and they need to recognize that if they still want to have good employees in 20 years, then we need to address some of the challenges in the educational system. How do you think that you and your race and Democrats more broadly should maneuver that move more generally? I feel like there's sometimes a purism about moral arguments where it feels like if one argument is the most morally pressing, it's the one that's most tightly connected to social justice, then that's the only argument we should make. And arguing for the same position in these different ways feels like a betrayal or it feels like a cynical move and there's something wrong with it. I mean, how do you feel about that? And, and, and what are some other examples where you think we should be making those kind of complementary arguments? I feel like if you're trying to do the right thing, as long as you're not doing the wrong thing to get the right thing done, you should do the things to get things done. And that's, that's how you deliver for people. So look, if making arguments to business leaders about the changing demographics of the state of Colorado and the need for us to close the attainment gap between white Coloradans and particularly the Latinx population in Colorado is absolutely imperative in order for them to succeed 10, 20 years from now, even if my main motivation is, is a social justice concern, the economy is also important to me. I don't consider that a deceitful argument. It's a different argument, and it's a different argument aimed at accomplishing the same objective. And I think we do that in a number of spheres. I mean, one of the most powerful arguments for transforming our economy in order to address the existential threat of climate change is that it has economic benefits as well as making the future of the earth something that we don't have to despair about. And so I think we make those practical or those economic arguments in a number of spheres, and we ought to. It doesn't mean that where there isn't an obvious economic argument, there aren't still things that are right to be done. So we shouldn't move ourselves entirely to that playing field, but we should not shy away from them, certainly when there's no downside, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying you should make sure that you have your future employees and workforce taken care of. What does that look like on the hot button issue of uh, quote unquote identity politics? Which I'm never quite sure what people mean by it. I think different people mean very different things by it and it's always helpful to sort of specify. But how can we defend groups that are under attack from the Trump administration and that do suffer real injustices in our country? without making it feel like we are pitting different groups against each other, or the Democrats are the party that cares about one set of groups and the Republican is the party that cares about a different set of groups and we're just gonna measure our electoral strength at the voting booth every four years. I think one of the ways we do it is by talking about values. And I think the Democratic Party has a strong record to run on, on being the party that has, over the course of a century, been about making sure that every person counts. And the people at the margins, the people who have been historically excluded are the ones that's where the fight is. And obviously, you know, I'm a gay man. I grew up in Colorado in 1992, Amendment 2 passed by popular referendum, which made it illegal to provide civil rights protections to LGBT people at, at the local level. And today there's an openly gay governor. I am aware of what 
progress is possible when people pick up the fight to fight for people on the margins who are excluded. And I don't think that we should ground any arguments about a particular group of people in the arguments that apply to all people in terms of universal values. And I think when we look back at the last hundred years, every significant step change that has made progress in making our country closer to fulfilling the promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all Americans has been fought for by Democrats, sometimes with the help of some Republicans, but it's been fought for and led by Democrats, whether that was the policies of the New Deal and Social Security, whether that was the civil rights legislation and Medicare and Medicaid, Obamacare, you know, all of these step changes in the way that we think about what kind of society we want to live in and how we want each person to be able to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, all of these have been led by Democrats, and I'm proud to run on that record. As you said, identity politics has become this kind of tagline, bogeyman. In some sense, all politics is identity politics. Of course, we all speak from our story, and I speak from my story as well. But I hope that as we speak from our own story, it's a story that gives us perspective on why those universal values are so important, why it is so important to be committed to the dignity of each and every person. Yeah, that seems to me the, the crucial distinction, whether you're open and clear about the fact that particular groups suffer disadvantage and are under attack and we should care for them as our fellow citizens, or whether it starts to sound like just a coalitional politics where it's like, we stand for these groups. And that can often be a subtle rhetorical difference, but it's an important one. I agree. And I've tried to make clear as I go around the state that, you know, my first campaign stop was to Yuma, Colorado which is where Cory Gardner is from. And uh, I visited a farm uh, next the door. The Republican senator. The Republican from incumbent, yes. I visited a farm there, and it's a farm that's owned by lifelong Republican. And, you know, part of the message I wanted to send with that visit is that I'm committed to understanding and appreciating the challenges that are faced by people, even those who don't vote for me, and that when I win and when I go to Washington, I will be committed to representing even those who don't vote for me. That is what politics should be. It should entail a, a perspective on the whole. And I think one of the things, having served overseas for the United States and having represented all 330 million Americans, including those who didn't vote for President Obama, I have a sense that we're all in this together. And yes, we have elections to pick and choose who's going to represent us at any given point in time, but we're still all going to be in this together after any given person leaves office. And the right and responsible thing to do when you're in office is to aim to represent the interests of everyone you serve. Well, I started off the interview by asking you about uh, the grueling downsides of being a candidate for high office in this country. And hopefully we can start off the next interview by me asking you about the grueling downsides of being a United States Senator. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Dan. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.